just sang too. And uh, what a beautiful picture of, uh, of heaven that we get to sing about. So we're going to pray here at the front. I want to encourage you to come forward and pray with me here at the front if you'd like to do that now. Uh, but, uh, but we're going to pray uh, to the Lord and uh, ask him to bless our time in his word. We've been singing his word back to him. We've been singing a lot about heaven this morning. We've been singing about Christ. Uh, we've been singing about uh, the faithfulness that God has towards us and the faith that we can express towards him. And we need to be reminded of these things. We need to be encouraged by his word. And that's what his word does. It encourages us on a regular basis. And when we come together like this and we sing scripture back to him, we sing God's truth back to him, it encourages us, it edifies us, it sets right in our minds and our hearts um, what sometimes we begin to spiritually drift. We need to be reminded of the things that are truthful about his word. So join me as we pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless um, uh, not only his word, but, uh, but let's, let's talk to him about the things that, that matter to him, things that matter to us. So let's pray. Father, we just come to you today just thanking you for heaven. We thank you for the gift of heaven. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. We thank you for the promise of of so much that you have shown to us from the, from the scriptures. Thank you, Lord, that our suffering in difficult days, pain, both emotional pain and physical pain and just the notion of death itself, Lord, all of us have had people in our lives that we've lost loved ones here on earth, God. We long for a day where we don't struggle with sin anymore. We long for a day where our faith is made sight and that, God, we can look upon you and we can see you for who you are and, and, Lord, be with you for all of eternity without difficulty, without pain, without suffering. But, God, most importantly, we just want to be with you and we want to be in your presence. We thank you this morning, God, that your presence is here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are in this room, that you live in our hearts, and that you point us to Jesus, the Son. You don't point us to ourselves. You don't point us, God, to fix ourselves. You point us to the one who, Lord, can redeem us and has redeemed us, the one who transforms us and has transformed us, the one that is transforming us, the one who, Lord, has done what we could never do for ourselves, and that's pay the penalty that, that, was, that was necessary because of our sins. Jesus, you are perfect. You are holy as you walked to this earth, you never sinned, you never had a sinful thought, you never had a sinful word or action. You were the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, you sit at the right hand of the Father. You have done the work for us. You reign. And so we thank you that, Lord, you have done for us everything that was required. God, thank you that you require only faith. Faith and belief in you. And Lord, you transform our hearts. We begin to turn away from our sin and we begin to follow you wholeheartedly with our lives. And we thank you for the promise, Lord, not only of eternal life that we've been singing about, but that abundant life that you promise us here on earth. Lord, we come into a room like this. And we come into a room like this and many of us, Lord, struggling with discouragement worry, anxiety, 
some of us, Lord, are just depressed. And we don't see any way out of our failures. And then we come into a room like this and we hear and we interact with your people and we interact with you, Lord, because you offer us something that for some of us in this room have not experienced and that is an abundant life. And we thank you, Lord, for that promise. And for those of us in this room, we've experienced that. We've experienced total and complete forgiveness of our sins and in the sense that, Lord, you, we, we embrace the work that you've done on the cross and from the grave. So thank you for that this morning. God, we pray for your hand to be upon us today. We know you're here, but Lord, manifest your presence here among us. Lord, that many would be saved that are in this room that are not followers of you yet. Marriages would be restored, people's lives and hearts, that our hearts and minds, God, would be in tune with you and your word and we would follow it. And so, God, we just pray for your hand to be upon us. Move among, among us. Stir our hearts, Holy Spirit, to you. We worship you, God, in spirit and in truth. So bless this time together that we have in your word, God. God, open our hearts and our eyes, our minds to you. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Lord, wake us up. Spiritually, wake us up that we would hear your, your voice from your word. And God, lead us to faith, lead us to action, lead us to obedience. Lord, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can return to your seats. And I want to ask you this morning to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joshua in Joshua chapter 9. We're going to move into Joshua 9 this morning. We're going to look this morning at the first half of the side of a coin. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the, the other half of the side of the coin, if you will. This story in Joshua chapter 9. Um, we're going to look at the first half of this story about a place called Gibeon. And then we're going to look at the second half of that story next Sunday morning. So you'll want to be here as we, uh, as we come together and look at these two sides of the same coin. The story of Gibeon. And, and we're going to look today at the trouble of following your heart. Anybody have trouble with that? All of us do. We're going to look at that this morning. We all have blind spots. We all have blind spots in our life. If you're married, then ladies, you tend to like to point out those blind spots for us husbands. Because we all have them. We don't admit that we have them, but you like to remind us of those blind spots. If you're single and you haven't been married, that's okay. You have friends in your life. You have parents in your life. You have people around you in your life that are close friends of yours that can see things in your life that you can't see. We all have those things, ladies included. All of us have those blind spots. Students, you have blind spots. Children, you have blind spots. We all have them, no matter how old we are, how young we are, whatever the case is in between. And uh, we need to be reminded of those things. I think when it comes to the Israelites, when we think about Joshua 9, the story, the Israelites were never designed to jump out and live their life on their own, try to navigate through the promised land and take this land and do all of this work on their own. We've already seen them fail once. We're going to see them fail again here in chapter 9. They were never meant to follow their own logic. They were ne never meant to follow their own hearts. They were meant to follow the wisdom of God, and that's what God has called us to. We're designed not to pursue our, what our hearts tell us, but we're designed to pursue and follow the wisdom that God gives to us and promises to us. Now, there are two victories that have already taken place in Joshua, right? We got the victory of Jericho. We got the victory of what? 
AI. That's not a hard one to remember. AI. How do you say that name? Yeah, so they've already, already had two victories. Joshua has had and led them to two victories, Jericho and Ai. They failed once, but they did inevitably come and save, or, or rather win the, the battle of Ai there in chapter 8. And we saw that a couple weeks ago. Now we come into, and move into chapter 9. Why did they follow through? Why did they have those victories? They experienced those victories because of their obedient faith because they were willing to take God up on his offer, and because they took God up on his offer, what God continued to do for his people here in Israel is give them what he had promised them, what he had promised them back with Abram and continues on with this promise that God delivers always on his promises. The more obedient faith that they exercise, the more blessing, the more land, the more rest, uh, the more life that he would give to them. These were the things that God had promised his people. These are the things, by the way, that God promises us. In, large respect, in, in many respects. God continued to act upon the promises that he had given to his people. They would exercise that obedient faith. God would give it to them. Now, they had experienced uh, incredible failure in chapter 8. They're going to experience it, of course, here again, as we see in this story. I want to just walk through the story with us. We're going to look at these first 15 verses together. I'm going to read through them, but I'm going to tell the story as we read through the story. Uh, uh, the story together. I'm going to read these verses as we walk through the story together. You got to understand that coming out of chapter 8 and moving into and flowing into chapter 9, word had spread throughout the rest of Canaan. God's people were on the march. They had God on their side. When they followed God and were obedient to what the Lord said, things went well for them. When they did not follow the Lord's will or the Lord's direction, things didn't go well for them. We see that, of course, with AI, and we see the opposite effect of that when they followed God. Word began to spread throughout all of Canaan about this, this, these people that were following this God who was spreading and coming into Canaan and was taking over all of Canaan. And so there was this coalition that forms there in the beginning of chapter 9. Look at it with me. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the, uh, the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the, the, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, they heard of this. And here's the strategy. Their strategy was instead of fighting Israel one-on-one, -on -one, what they did is verse 2. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. So we see this coalition develop. They developed this, this unique strategy. They weren't going to take Israel on head-on like, uh, like uh, Jericho did or Ai did. They were going to band together and take on Israel and take on God himself. But not all were on board with this. In fact, we learn here in the story about a nation, a city-state named Gibeon. They react differently. They don't want to band together with other city-states and take on Israel. They've got a different strategy. Look at verse 3 with me. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard when, what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, look at verse 4. They, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready <clears throat> provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn mended with worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so, make, uh, so now make a covenant with us. So they come up with a strategy. 
And Gibeon now is about six and a half miles or so north, northwest of Jerusalem. That's where it is. That's not really important for you to remember this morning. But from, a, from the standpoint of where they're moving, they're coming into the promised land and they come to this town or they come to this, this place where they don't know who the Gibeonites are quite yet, but they're going to learn quickly who they are. This plan develops and this plan develops that they want to stay alive. And if they're going to stay alive, then they're going to have to come up with a different strategy. And so this is the strategy they come up with. It tells us there, if you just remember those verses, there's one word that should pop out of those verses, cunning. Now, what's the word cunning mean? It means deceptive. It means that they're clever. It means that they're skilled in deception in every way. And what are they doing and why are they doing this? Well, they're going to do this in order to pretend to be a nation that's not in Canaan, a nation that's outside of Canaan, a nation that's far away. And notice the adjectives that we see in these verses. And the adjectives that show out, point out to us that this is a, a, a people that they put on old clothes. They put on all of these, these kind of uh, raggedy things in order to somehow deceive or to trick the Israelites. Now, they obviously knew a couple things. They knew Israel was going to destroy everybody. They understood that Israel had come into Canaan not to make friends, but to destroy everyone. At some level, they may have even understood what God had told his people way back in Deuteronomy chapter 20. And it tells us there, and this is what God says to his people way back before they even get to the promised land. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it, and if it, is, if it responds to you peacefully and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But it makes no peace for, if it makes no peace for you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Now, verse 13 says this, And when the Lord your God gives it un, into your hand, you shall put all of, all of its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock, everything else in the city, and all its spoils you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the, the, the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given to you. He goes on to say this. Now listen. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are fa very far from you, which are not cities in the nations here, but in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you in Canaan for an inheritance, you shall save, uh, save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Now, certainly they understood at least some level that Israel was not here to make peace with them. Israel was here because they existed within the promised land, Gibeon and the Gibeonites. They exist in order to be destroyed. God's going to give them over to the Israelites, but the Israelites don't know it. So they seek a treaty. And what they seek a treaty in verse 6, look at verse 6 with me again. And they will come out after, he says, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Hang on. I'm looking at chapter 9. Verse 6, and they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, and they say, said to him, to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. Is that true? No, it's not true. So now make a covenant with us. They're trying to trick the Israelites, and so they seek a treaty. Delegation, bold, they look, and they sounded helpless. They looked, and they sounded the part. They looked thirsty. They looked hungry. They looked poor in every respect, and they come to Joshua and to his people there in verse 6, and they want to develop this covenant, which is a binding agreement between two parties, right? And so they want a treaty, a peace treaty, this formal agreement, and they both parties are going to live up to these obligations, and so what does it tell us there? Well, look at verse 8 or 7 with me. 
says, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They're obviously cautious. They're obviously thinking to themselves, maybe this isn't quite right. Maybe this is, maybe we're trying, we're we're being tricked here. Maybe something is not right that's happening here in front of us. And so they question them in verse 7, and then in verse 8, look at verse 8. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? They start asking these questions. They ask the right questions. They're skeptic. But they end up listening to what they said because they looked the part. They sounded the part. They, everything logically looked right. But watch what happens in verse 9. They said to Joshua, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. They start laying it on. Watch this in verse 10. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of uh, Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your, in your hand for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. Look at verse 13. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they have burst And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. Look at verse 14. So the men took some of the provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They defended themselves here in these few verses. They defend themselves. They come up with the story. They lay it on. They pour it on. And the reaction of the, the, uh, the Israelites we see there in verses 14 and 15, of course, It says, again, the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Look at verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. You see, they deceived God's people, which led to this great failure among God's people. They took the gifts. They enter the covenant. They enter this peace treaty. What's the real sin? What's the real problem in the story? Well, verse 14 is the real problem in the story, right? God puts that little detail there for us in this story to help us understand the real problem in the story. They never asked the Lord whether this was right or wrong. They just acted upon their hearts. They just acted upon what they saw and what they heard. They never sought God's take on it. They never considered maybe this is wrong. They didn't ask for God's discernment. They acted on their own wisdom. And their perception in the end is what led them to make the decision that they made. Listen, church, we've got to understand something, that when you trust and you follow your heart in any decision, when you trust and you follow your own feelings or your emotions in every respect without pursuing God's wisdom, it will always lead you to the wrong place. I mean, when you set out to make a decision, when you set out to try to do something in your life, when you set out to to live your life, when you wake up in the morning and you set out to live that day that God has given you here on earth, and if you don't seek God's wisdom, it will always lead to the wrong place. What God shows us here clearly in his word is to help us understand is we need to seek the wisdom of God and rely on his direction for our lives. 
We've got to seek the wisdom of God. Now, listen, I think we need an action plan to help us understand that because that's the broad brush. Yeah, you need to seek God's wisdom. Well, how do you do this? How do you think through this in your mind? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to give you one this morning, a process to think through. You ready? You see, here's the thing. There's some things that we need to understand that maybe you want to write these things down that you need to think through when it comes to your, your, your process of thinking through decisions in your mind. Just because something looks and feels right doesn't mean it what? It is. Just because it looks right, it smells right, it sounds right, it looks the part, it sounds the part, it's right there, logically you've made sense of it, doesn't mean it's what? Always right. And we have to understand that when we go into anything in our lives, right? They looked and they sounded the part, didn't they? They showed up with raggedy clothes. They, they, they talked about how hungry they were. They, they talked about how thirsty they were. They, they talked about how far they had traveled. They, they had done all of these things. They had and they developed this convincing presentation and then they executed it to Joshua and the people. It was a really creative plan if you think about it. This was a no-brainer deal. You know what an infomercial is? Oh, you've all heard of infomercials, right? There's actually a sign behind, or there's science behind infomercials. Every infomercial that you hear on TV, whether it's a 30-second clip or it's a two or three or four-second or minute clip, always has a science behind it. There's a process. In fact, number one, here's the thing. When they try to sell you on a product, they always explain the universal problem. You've got a problem in your life. You can almost hear it now, right, the commercial? You've got a problem in your life. And then there's number two in the process, and that is that they share the ideal solution to your problem. It's a universal problem for you and your household. It's a universal problem for your neighbor and the person who's your best friend. And then they present the ideal solution. If you'll just this, you may have this problem, but here, and then number three is always this, right? Because here's the third thing that they always say. They explain why that ideal, ideal solution's hard to achieve. It's really hard to achieve that. And then, of course, number four is always what? They bring about the solution. They explain how what you are being offered is better. But they're not done, are they? But wait, because there's always the special offer. In every infomercial, there is a special offer at the end. It's either free shipping, it's either, and here are the phrases, and some of you are going to finish them for me. I jotted them down for myself. Here they are. You ready? But wait, there's more. Here you see, you know it. Thanks. Thanks to this special offer. Uh, operators are standing by. We'll, uh, we'll double your order. Call right now. Act now. And it goes on and on. You see, there's a science behind it in every single commercial that you hear, whether it's a three or four minute commercial on a particular product or a 30 second blip on some little kitchen gadget or a little tech gadget for us men, because we love tech stuff, that is always there. It's a convincing argument. It's a no brainer deal. Listen, the Gibeonites are pouring it on in this story. They offer spiritual flattery. Do you notice that in verse 9? Look at your Bibles. From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. 
For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did in the two kings of the Amorites and beyond the Jordan, the Sihon and Og, and who lived in the Asherah. So our elders and our inhabitants of our country said, take provisions in your, you know, in your hand, your country to meet them and say to them, we baked this bread. It smelled good. It was warm when it came out of the, they're pouring it on. They sound really good. They look the part. They sound the part. Just because something looks right, just because something sounds right, doesn't mean that it is. Which then leads you to the second thing that you have to ask yourself or understand. That just because you ask the right questions doesn't mean you're always going to get the correct what? Answers. Was Joshua and the people of God skeptical? Yeah, they were. It tells us that. Did they ask the right questions? Yeah, they started asking the right questions. They did their investigation to a certain degree. They acted with caution, <clears throat> even Joshua. But you see in the story what you, you know, you can, you can ask and not get the correct answers. As Joshua himself asks questions, he's thinking through this, but the answers he gets back isn't right. Something can sound really right, but not be right. But it pulls the heart strings. There's this commercial out there. I'm on a commercial kick today. There's this commercial out there, and I know it's going to offend y'all because we laugh about it in our household, and I'm sorry on the front end of this because it's probably going to offend some of you. But it's that commercial with animals, and they're being abused, and I'm all about not abusing animals, but you know, this, you know, the, you know the commercial I'm talking about where the, it opens with this real sad music, and there is this cat, and they slow it down. And it starts to bat its eyes. And then there's a dog off to the side. And there's this music that's playing. And what is it trying to do? Trying to get you to do what? Give money. On the surface, right, we don't want to see dogs abused or animals abused in the least bit. I don't either. But the whole purpose and point of the commercial is to do what? Pull on your heartstrings to get you to give. To give money. To give other things, Right? They know what they're doing when they have a commercial like that, when they develop a commercial like that. You know, when it comes back to the story, listen, the problem was Israel needed wisdom. Joshua needed wisdom. They needed to act not on their own hearts or on their human wisdom. They needed to act on the wisdom of God. Now, here's the third thing I want you to remember. You see, when you trust, when you just, or rather, when you, when you follow your heart, you just trust in your own heart. When you trust in your own human wisdom, it's always going to lead you away from truth. It shows up in our culture all the time. It shows up, you know, when the culture tells you something, our culture around us or people around us kind of tell us something or influence us in all kinds of different capacities and ways. We see it happening all around us. But it's never a good idea to follow your heart. Let's unpack that word heart for a moment, okay? is the word heart is used over 300 times in the Bible, so it's a really big deal to God. We all have hearts, and I'm not talking about the heart that's beating in your chest right now. You see, when we talk about following our hearts, it's not about following what's beating in our chest. It's about following this understanding of your emotions, your feelings, uh, your desires. All of that encompasses what's called the heart in the Bible. The Bible says we ought not follow our hearts because they're always going to lead us away from the truth. 
In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, it says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. He's not talking about, Jeremiah's not talking about the, the heart beating in your chest. He's talking about your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your emotions. It says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Think about this. That doesn't sound good, does it? It doesn't sound good that my thoughts and my emotions and my desires are going to lead me away. They're deceitful. In fact, Jesus tells us over in Mark chapter 7, what a great passage to think about. Mark chapter 7 verse, uh, uh, verse 10, I'm sorry, verse 21 says this, For from within, out of the heart, Jesus says, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within they defile a person. He's talking about the, the idea that, listen, in our hearts, our hearts are going to deceive us. You know, our thoughts and our emotions and our desires, all of these things are going to tell us certain things. They're going to convince us and they're going to be really, really convincing of certain things in our hearts and our minds. And then it's going to express itself in actions. It's going to express itself in the words that we say, in the actions, in the decisions that we make, in the lifestyles that maybe we, we build around our lives. Listen, all of those things come from within. And the bad news is that, that Jeremiah 17, 9, right, it's, the heart is deceitful, it's wicked in that sense, which leads us to the good news, right, is we need this good news. Understand this, church, we need to understand the good news, that your heart is going to lead you away from the truth, but Christ will never, ever deceive you. Jesus Christ will never deceive you. He is the Lord of truth. So we understand this, and we come to understand who God is, and we begin to understand who God is for the very first time, and we understand who Jesus is for the very first time. He isn't just a historical figure. We have to come face to face with our brokenness. We have to come face to face with our reality of our brokenness. But listen, here's the deal. You can't come face to face with your sin, with your reality of your brokenness, until you've come face to face with the reality of the perfect Savior, a God who is perfect and holy in every way. You have no mirror to look into because the mirror you're looking into is the brokenness that you see around you. So you begin to compare yourselves to other people. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I didn't kill somebody or at least I didn't do this or at least I didn't do that. And you see what we begin to do is we compartmentalize, we minimize rather our sin. We minimize our brokenness. But the fact of the matter is no one has to convince you or me that I'm broken. That something's not right inside of me. Something's not right inside of my heart. And so we get to this place in our life where we see and we understand for the first time, God is perfect, he's holy, he's not like me. Like he's not just a good old boy down the street who messes up once in a while, but he's just a good old boy. I understand that he's perfect and he's holy. There's this expectation, there's this standard. Well, what about me? That's the point. The point is I could never live up to his expectation. For all have sinned and fallen short of the what? Glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. We understand these verses out of the Bible. And we understand that when I understand that when I understand my brokenness, and when I understand that I could never fix myself, I could never repair myself, I could never remake myself, that's when we need good news. So many people stop at that point and they see, keep trying to go down the road of trying to fix themselves and they never can. They never can. Maybe that's you. You never can try to fix your, even though you try to fix yourself. So many things, you try to clean yourself up, clean yourself up, clean, 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 and yet you're just 
broken, which is why we need the good news. And the good news of God is Jesus Christ came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Listen, you are lost, you are broken, you are set aside, you are set apart in the sense that you are not part of God's kingdom, God's family, and we understand this, and many of us in this room who are believers understand this now. But there are some who don't yet understand it. Some of us in this room haven't yet come to faith in Jesus. So we're at this point of understanding the good news, that God does love you. He didn't leave you to fend for your life. He does love you. And he stepped into this life, he stepped into this world through himself, Jesus Christ himself, to save you. And then what he does is he offers you himself, that if you believe in him, what God does is he, his forgiveness of sin is then implied to your life. His work is applied to your life, and therefore you live your life not as someone who walks around with guilt, but as someone who has walked around, walks around redeemed. And there's the beauty of the gospel right there. Don't follow your heart. Your heart's always going to be wicked. It's always going to lead you away. Don't follow your emotions or your feelings in matters. Don't follow those things because it's always going to lead you astray. But Jesus will never lie to you. He will never deceive you. And he gives you a new heart. And so what, through Jesus Christ, God makes himself available all the wisdom that you need to live your life. You need wisdom to understand how to, to build your company or build your business how to make those critical decisions that are going to impact and affect your family. You need wisdom to understand who to marry, who to date students. If you need wisdom about that, listen, this is where God comes into play, right? Because there's all kinds of people that are telling you all different things and all kinds of opinions and matters into your life. Culture's telling you one thing, your best friend's telling you this, this person over here's telling you this, I saw this on Instagram, saw this thing on Facebook, all of these kinds of things, it's all just coming, flowing into our lives, and it's shaping your heart. It's shaping it. Jesus will never lie to you. He gives you the wisdom that you need and all the relationships that you have. Your finances, what do I do with the money that God has given me? What do I do with my time? What do I do with my possessions? What do I do? How do I live this life that God's called me to live? Should I post that or should I not post that? Wisdom is what comes into play in all of these things in our lives, right? So practically speaking, how do we get it? Wisdom comes. You ready for this? Here's the secret to the question. You know how wisdom comes? When you ask. All you got to do is ask him. There's a beauty to how and a simplicity of what the Lord shows us in, in our lives. How do we get wisdom? We ask him. That's not complicated, is it? James chapter 1 tells us this. He shows us this promise. He says this, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. You ask for it. You see, the Lord wants you to, and I to live out a life of success and, and spiritual growth. He wants us to grow spiritually and mature spiritually. But what does it require? He requires dependence. He requires you and I to come to him helpless. He requires you and I to come with faith, right? Because that's the condition in the, in the verses there. 
He doesn't just say, ask for wisdom. He says, ask for wisdom, and then he clarifies how to ask. Don't come to him in verse 6 with doubting, without faith. Because that person's like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Oh, I believe in God. No, I don't believe in God. I believe in God. No, I believe in myself. I believe in this person. I believe in that person. I believe what I read over here. I believe what this person told me. I believe what this group over here told me. Did you hear about what I heard about at church or school or what have you? That person is like the wave of a sea, and you're just moving all over the place. You're, you're everywhere. But you come to the Lord, and you say, Lord, I'm helpless. I got nothing. I've got nothing, Lord. I've got nothing, Lord. I need you to show me the way. And here is what wisdom is. Wisdom does this. What wisdom does is God takes his word and he applies it to your situations. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is taking this word of God and wielding it and applying it in different scenarios and situations. And if you need that wisdom, you simply ask. You don't ask with doubt. You ask with what? Faith. You don't ask with this double mind. You ask him with devotion and with desperation. And the promise is he gives it to us. So listen, church, don't act upon the decisions that you have to make. Don't trust and, 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 and live your life by following your heart, not pursuing the wisdom of God. That's always going to lead you to the wrong place. But trust him and follow him and seek his wisdom in all matters of life. And he'll give it to you. I think the battle in our hearts and our minds is always to remember the truth. The battle in my life, I know, is to remember what I already have already read, what I already know God has done and shown me in his word. That's really where the spiritual battle is. It's not being immersed by the challenge or the decision or all of these things. It's to remember what I already know is true and then claim that before God, and God gives it to me. I love this verse out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 20. It says, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. That is the God we worship this morning. He's greater than your heart. The Lord is greater than your emotions. He's greater than your desires. He's greater than your feelings. He's greater than all of those things. And he promises to give us wisdom. So don't follow your heart. Follow and allow the Holy Spirit to lead your heart. Allow the Spirit of God to shape your emotions. Allow the Spirit of God to shape your attitudes. Allow the Spirit of God to shape your desires. To turn your affections away from you and what you want to be affectionate towards the Lord. Lord, what do you want? And this is what the Lord does. The Spirit of God does this work in our life. Your heart will always want to rule you. It will always want to shape you. It will always want to mold you. It will always be pulling you, pulling you, pulling you back. But Christ is greater than that. And let the Lord Jesus Christ rule. Let the Spirit of God work. Let the Spirit of God move. And so let go of those things. And let the Lord Jesus Christ shape and mold your affections of your heart. I want you to pray with me. Bow your heads and close your eyes, and we're going to have a time of prayer. Listen, as our worship team comes, they're going to lead us in a song. You know, as we come to the conclusion of our service, I think the response that God always wants us to have is faith. 
is to act in faith, to act in obedience, to act upon what God wants us to do and think and how he wants us to live in light of his word. You may have a difficult decision that you're trying to make right now. You may have something at work, maybe something in your family, maybe it's something personal that's going on in your heart right now. I want you to heads bowed and eyes closed. You don't even need to look at me. You just start thinking about what the Lord wants. And so we're going to have a time here at the end of our service for you to respond to those decisions. Maybe it's keeping you up at night. You just need to lay those things before the Lord. You know, as we, I'll be standing down here at the front, but you don't have to come to me. What I want to encourage you to do if you're willing to come and have the courage to come is just to, to give your things, give these things to the Lord. Cast these things towards him. And just ask him, God, give me wisdom. Help me to know what's right. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to make these decisions in my life? And so these stairs will be open for you to come. You can come and just kneel here. You can pray where you are. That's fine as well. But let's spend some time with the Lord praying to him and just turning these things over to him. Maybe in the service today, God's been speaking to you about salvation and about responding to him being obedient to him to say, yes, I want to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. I want to turn away from my sin. I want to start following him. Maybe God's been speaking to you in the service about that. And I want to encourage you to come forward and tell me that. We'll wait for you when you come. Maybe you just need prayer over a particular matter. Maybe God's speaking to you about baptism. If you've not been baptized after you given your life to Jesus Christ. God wants you to be baptized. That's your first act of obedience. Maybe it's to join our church and start that process. I don't know what God is saying to you or has been saying to you as of late, but God wants you to respond in obedience to these things. And so it requires courage. And I'm going to pray for you to have courage. How about we do that? Let me pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for guiding us, directing us, and leading us, Lord. And God, as we come to you now for these next few minutes, we just pray for your blessing on this time and give us courage. I pray for every person in this room that they would have courage to say yes to you in every area, every decision that you want them to make in their life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.